time to set foot inside the morgue with your hosts, Lee, Carl, and Rob. These last forests are lots of beautiful nation. Give the hope that they will one day return and grace our power. Hello, welcome to episode six of the Manchester Morgue podcast. Tonight we're doing Silent Running, uh, 1972. We thought we'd start off with a little bit where we talk about what we've been watching. So Rob, what have you been watching recently? Yeah, I've seen a couple of films. One, uh, Highs and Lows with me as usual. And I saw a Chinese epic martial arts film called Double World, which apparently was massive budget last year, but uh, they've not, not made anything back because of corona and lockdown. Uh, and some of the some of the some of the fight sequences in it are incredible. It's about a Chinese warlord. He wants to grab, he wants to all the clans of the of China to come together for this giant battle. Yeah, there's some, some amazing sequences in it. It's completely you know, implausible and laughable. And very crouching tiger, hidden dragon, people flying around on cables. But it's so what so much fun. And then I watched something too really awful. I watched uh, <laughs> I watched Friday the Thirteenth uh, Part. I think it's seven or eight. Uh, Jason takes Manhattan. Part eight. And did he take Manhattan? Yeah, he doesn't take Manhattan. He floats around on a boat and kills a lot of stupid teenagers. Uh, <laughs> in the first couple of minutes, is a there's an eighties boob scene, which uh, which little me would have liked, and little me still liked that. <laughs> so he's basically Jason uh, on a boat on a, yeah, on a boat actually, lake. I will say this for the film because some people said it was one of the worst, but it's like so bad it's good in parts. You know, there yeah. is some real, it's got some, some, some of the killings are quite funny. There's a boxer, I won't ruin it for people, but there's a boxing sequence, which is hilarious. Uh, I didn't stop laughing for about 10 minutes. So Jason takes my hat and that was, that's my watch. So what about you guys? What have you been watching? Um, I've been, so I've seen a couple of things. I'd just like to add that Friday 13th part eight, although it's, it's, a, it's very hokey, it's certainly not the worst in the series. I think that accolade probably belongs to part seven. Which is the new blood, which is that bad? I don't even, I don't really remember anything from it. But eight, yeah, and and apparently the eight, Jason takes Manhattan, was all filmed in Toronto as well in Canada. So, uh, so actually wasn't filmed in in Manhattan either, and uh, and he, he doesn't go there. So it's kind of a double, uh, a double kind of con really. Um, so what have I watched? I watched on iPlayer, BBC iPlayer last week was the uh, The Shining, which I've not, oh. I've not seen, I've not seen for about. 15 20 years it was the uk version so it's just under two hours there's a yeah. unite the us version is about two hours two and a half hours something like that yeah i enjoyed it i, I don't think i'd realized before having watched it before that it's actually a film about i thought it was a film about the mum you know the the mum oh, character yeah. she's trying to she's trying to hold everyone together and, and pull everything together yeah. and of course jack nicholson's going mad Have you read the book I haven't. No, I, that's that's what I'd like to like to read. Actually, give that a try because yeah, the, the the film is good, but I think it's kind of it's weighed down a little bit having Jack Nicholson in the lead because he can't really ever escape from being Jack Nicholson. You know, instead of yeah. being, you don't really ever believe that he's he's a tortured kind of writer who's got this job at this hotel. He's he's being Jack Nicholson. Whereas I thought yeah. the, the film's kind of very much about the mum played by Shelley Duvall. And she's kind of, she's got the son who can see things, see disturbing things, the, the shining. So she's kind of got him, she's trying to pull, hold him together. But also she's trying to 
you know, she's trying to kind of keep reeling her husband back into sanity. And ultimately she fails. And there's a hilarious um, meme going around with Shelley Duvall because, you know, there's lots of screaming in that film. Um, with her mouth wide open, she's got like one of those hot pockets in her mouth. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I've not seen that one. I, I thought I wouldn't mind watching the um, the extended version, which I think you can get on Blu-ray. But I, I've, I've never seen that one. It's always been the uh, UK cut. It's one of those films that I tend to revisit every every so five or six mm, years, yeah. really. Yeah, it's one of yeah. my favourites that I always go I around. I do like to. it. I, it's one of, I, I, will, I will still stare at people and go, Red Ram. Yes, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you seen um, the, uh, what is it, Doctor Sleep? The, um, yes, I have, the recent yeah. one with Ewan McGregor. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that either. So. I read the book for that. I mean, the book, the book um, is not as strong as the shining book um and but it does get a bit more d- deeper into the idea of you know the power of the shining the films don't really get across that well mm. it, it's like he, he doesn't get across in the film the idea that the hotel is completely merging with you know the jack character you don't quite cause, like you said because it's jack nicholson and jack nicholson always plays everything heightened up anyway doesn't it but that's, that's right yeah, yeah. And the, the other one I saw was um, a slasher film from 1980 called Terror Train with Jamie oh, Lee yes. Curtis that I, I thoroughly enjoyed and would, would recommend recommend to anyone, really. Uh, I was just It was one of those films that just completely passed me by. It's a slasher film. It's from 1980, set on a train with Jamie Lee Curtis. And, you know, how have I, how have I missed that one all these years? Um, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a good combination. Yeah. yeah, and bizarrely, it's got David Copperfield in, uh, in one of the main roles as, yes, you've guessed it, The Magician. Uh, so uh, it's got that kind of added pull as well, if, if that's your kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I've been uh, keep, keeping, it, keeping it kind of horror the last couple of weeks. I think it must be the Halloween, Halloween kind of vibes in the air. And uh, Lee, have you been have you been casting your critical eye over anything lately? Truth Seekers on Amazon Prime, which is Nick Frost and Simon Pegg. It's kind of like IT Crowd meets uh, Shaun of the Dead, but I like it because it's quite understated. Throw yeah. a lot of really funny lines. They throw them away almost. It's, it's got a, the idea of somebody having a sideline in the paranormal investigations. And it's, it's kind of taking the mick out of everybody's got like a bit of a sideline these days, haven't they? Everybody's got a podcast. You know, everybody's got a YouTube. Everyone's things on the side. This is this is our ticket to fame and fortune. You guys don't don't knock it. You know? <laughs> Mean. We'll be selling merchandise soon. Yeah. yeah, you know it. You know it. They'll be wearing t-shirts and everything. And the only other thing really was Nebraska, which was another Bruce Dern film. I thought I'd widened my knowledge of Bruce, and uh, that's really good. He got an Oscar nominee for that film, and he plays like a stubborn uh, dad who's uh, had a spam letter that says you've won a million dollars, and he decides he's going to walk to this town that's about 60 miles away. And uh, it's a road trip movie with father and son road trip movie. Yeah, it's got Will Fort in it as well, hasn't it? It's, yeah, uh, it's really... quite heartwarming. And... So that's it. Yeah. Great. So should we uh, move on to the movie? We're going to change things around a little bit. Rather than uh, describe the movie line by line, I'm going to read out a uh, summary of the plot. The first thing uh, we get is a close-up uh, macro shots of the flora and fauna of the forest and its inhabitants, which include a snail, turtle and a naked Freeman Lowell played by Bruce Dern who's skinny dipping in a tropical forest stream set in a future where somewhat implausibly all plant life on earth has become extinct for reasons unknown earth's last remaining forests and assortment of animals have been packed into biodomes aboard several spaceships and blasted towards Saturn 
One of these spacecrafts, the Valley Forge, is the setting for the movie and home to four human crew, three maintenance robot drones. Uh, Lowell is the ship's botanist, ecologist and medic who looks after the plants and animals in the dome. So one day the forest can be returned to refoliate the industrialised barren earth. Uh, After eight years, the crew receives a radio transmission ordering them to abandon the mission, nuke the domes for some unknown reason, and uh, return the ships to Earth. Lowell is absolutely horrified by this. After witnessing the glee of his crewmates uh, blowing up four of the drones, he decides to save the remaining forests. He kills one of the crew in a fight, and then he jettisons and blows up the other two whilst they're inside the dome, just for good measure. He's then left isolated alone with three drones, or three toasters, as Rob calls them, for company, uh, which he names uh, Huey, Louie, and Dewey. Uh, he reprograms a robot to treat his leg, which is dam- he damaged in the fight. And the ship travels dangerously through Saturn's rings, killing uh, the unfortunate Louie, who gets uh, sucked off by Saturn. Sucked off by Saturn. Into the storm. Yeah. And there's there's worse ways to go. <laughs> yeah. And Lowell reprograms the two remaining drones to uh, plant trees and play poker with him. But his mental health begins to deteriorate further. Uh, whilst manically driving a buggy, he accidentally runs over Huey and is unable to fully repair him. And the somewhat depressed and confused Lowell takes his eye off the ball and the forest starts dying much to his horror he doesn't understand how this is happening even though he's a botanist Uh, (laughs) but it turns out to be a lack of sunlight who would have thought that uh, would be a problem when orbiting Saturn GCSE photosynthesis (laughs) (laughs) and he sets up a series of lights to rectify the issue but when the control manages to track down Valley Forge he knows the game's up and his crime will be discovered he decides to eject the remaining dome with Dewey on board looking after it, while he and the damaged Huey remain on the Valley Forge, which Lowell blows up with a nuclear bomb, committing the ultimate sacrifice. And the last scene is uh, of Silent Run is, is the drone drifting off into space with Huey on his own, holding a watering can. A kid's um, watering can, yeah. Yeah, he's actually, it was his deceased daughter's watering yeah. can, uh, Bruce Dern's, for possibly uh, seemingly eternity. Uh, the credits roll to the warbling of hippie folk singer Joan Baez, which I know you uh, particularly yeah, enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> I must say, before we launch into it, I am a, obviously a huge fan of this film, uh, but everybody I've seen who's a fan of this film always says um, they saw it as a child, which I did. It was a film that was shown in the 1980s quite a bit on BBC. I think back when BBC Two used to show quite a few early evening films. So I am a bit biased, but... They used to have Star Trek on, didn't they? And uh, occasional kind of science fiction films, maybe like Spider-Man, the old Spider-Man movies from the 70s they put on in that time slot. I can imagine it being it being run uh, there. Yeah, it was probably around the time that was just after Star Wars, really, sort of mid-80s. So, yeah, I think anything with a, a cute drone, a cute robot in it was uh, much sought after by the uh, by the programmers. It's, it's message, uh, save the trees. It's, it's about as subtle as a sledgehammer, is it? <laughs> we have to say that. I mean, even the opening song, which, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not a big fan of Joan Barris. I love Bob Dylan. In the, I know Bob Dylan uh, had a bit of time in her company for a while, but... Uh, when a soprano shrill voice comes in at the beginning, um, I was loving the the visuals. By the way, I mean it, this film, we have to say this, looks still looks quite mildly impressive if you consider it's nineteen seventy two. It's like, um, but the opening when that, when her voice comes in, it kind of like for me that I, oh that 
that voice, that soprano, the shrill voice, and it was really screaming, pitchy, and she was singing about forests and trees, and um, yeah, it's it's not subtle, but it's. I was saying to you, um, I was saying to you earlier, Rob, that she'd uh, apparently she'd just come off a world tour, so she was absolutely exhausted. I think even the director said it was a little bit more shrill than he was expecting. Yeah. I don't think all, all the songs are quite as as shrill as that, but I know there's a lot of fans of this soundtrack. I think the uh, they released a green vinyl version of it, which is quite sought after. And I know uh, Mark Commode's a big fan of the film. I think he sort of says he he sticks on this soundtrack uh, just to oh, relax geez. in the evening. So you, there are fans of it. But uh, Carl, what did you think of the, of the opening bit? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't find... I, I'm not really a fan of Joan Baez by any means, but then I, I wouldn't... I don't think... Um, I don't think the song's really... Uh, Really detracted too much. I mean, it seemed to um, fit in quite nicely with the, the theme of the film, from what I could, from what I could gather. And um, the first song she uh, sings is called Ga- "It's Called Gather Your Children" or something like that. And um, it kind of just it lays it lays out uh, what the film's all about. I think so. It's 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 quite well yeah. placed. It does it without kind of too much exposition. You know, putting putting a John Byers song in there actually. Probably saves them, saves them quite a bit of storytelling time, I think. I think the director, Douglas Trumbull, said he wanted it to portray a sense of a lost loved one or some sorrowful vibe to the film. So I think it certainly portrays that, doesn't it? Even she has, if you, yeah, she's sure. got that mournful. She's got that mournful quality to her voice, aren't she? A bit like a Karen Carpenter style. But um, I, yeah. yeah, it's just. Uh, yeah, it's not it's, everybody's cup of tea. I no, it's not, it's not. No, it's. Um, but as I said, I mean, but then I was also I was enjoying. I mean, I do. You know, I'm, it's going to become obvious as we talk later. I'm not a big fan, but I do enjoy the opening sequence. It's you know really puts you in the place. You're ready to roll. Um, and and Rob, you mentioned. Um, sorry, Rob. I was going to say you mentioned the special effects, and um, I was I was looking at the special effects. I mean, I was watching it on. Um, I watched it on uh, on Prime. Uh, last night, and you you can you can tell it's mo- you can tell their models. Have, yeah, having said yeah. that, you know that I think the storytelling is of, of such a quality that I, I can appreciate the artistry that's gone into the um, into the making of the models. And you can kind of you can kind of let it go. And I appreciate at the time yeah. the, the the effects were probably top of the range. And I know this this film was probably not as high budgeted as something like um, two thousand and one, which probably cost yeah. quite a lot more. <laughs> Although Trumbull was involved with both, I think it was part of. I uh, don't know if you heard, but uh, Universal, after the success of Easy Rider, came out of nowhere on a very low budget to be a success. They decided to commission five films to up and coming, uh, kind of unknown directors almost. And uh, this and the the proviso would be that the budget would be kept to under a million dollars, and uh, the studio would have very little interference with the films. So they, I think there was a number of. This was one right. of them. I think American they, Graffiti was the last one. Uh, the last movie, I think, was another one. Uh, Dennis Hopper. Yeah, and I think the directors were the directors were given like final cut as well. I think without any yes, yeah. kind of studio interference, because such was the confidence that uh, you know the success of Easy Rider had kind of garnered. Because I think what happened in Hollywood around that time was there were lots of um, really big budgeted musicals. There was a slew of them in like nineteen sixty eight, sixty nine. And they'd, they'd all cost a fortune and they'd all completely failed to make their money back. Like uh, ones like Hello Dolly and uh, Paint Your Wagon and uh, Dr. Doolittle and lots of lots of kind of big, big cinematic films. People weren't going to see them anymore. Then Easy Rider came along, which was shot for 
you know, very little indeed, almost like a home movie, perhaps. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it made an absolute fortune and completely changed the uh, culture of filmmaking. And the soundtrack, that, that film as well. I yeah, that helped. That always helps, doesn't it? I think they, you know, they got lots of the contemporary bands from the time on the on the soundtrack for that, like The Birds and Steppenwolf. Um, Steppenwolf and, yeah, of course. Um, mm. And I think, I can't remember what the other films were, Lee, from the five, kind of five that you mentioned. There's another one called... The last the movie, uh, American, yeah, I can't remember the other. Last movie's Dennis Hopper, who was involved with, with yeah. Easy Rider. I think there's one called The Hired Hand, which is Peter Fonda. It's like a western mm. that he made. Uh, yeah, American Graffiti, and yeah, this one, Silent Running, and another one which I can't remember. I think this was the only one to make no money, to be honest. But apparently, they didn't throw any money behind the marketing. I think it had a few quarter-page adverts in the New York Times, but the. Uh, and I think it was also a victim at the time of uh, The Godfather came out of a similar time as well. I think it had quite a quite a decent amount of competition at the time. Yeah, that probably do- bulldozed everything that was uh, everything yeah. else that was out, wouldn't it? And um, and, I, and I wonder, Lee, you said that this film has an interesting Italian title. I, I wonder if its lack of success in the US was a reason for this. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, in, in Italy, they uh, marketed it as the 2002 Space Odyssey, so uh, almost like a sequel to 2001. <laughs> I must say, it, I mean, if I'd have seen 2001 and then been an Italian film fan and thought, oh yeah, va bene, uh, you know, and then going to go to the cinema <laughs> to watch 2002, I think I would have been a bit, I'd, say, I'd, I'd certainly been surprised because, I mean, tonally, I think the films are, there are some similarities, but I mean, they're, I think they're very, very different. Yeah. I think, if anything, 2001 is kind of cinematic experience, pure, you know, pure cinematic experience. And I think, two, uh, no, I was just going to call it 2002 then. I think Silent Running <laughs> is, um, to me, it's got the feel, and this, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you know, like um, Steven Spielberg's Duel came along a couple of years later that was actually made for TV, the film about the mm. car and the truck that's chasing it oh, yeah. uh, throughout the film. I, I felt this could have been like, you know, a really, really good made-for-TV movie from that era. Douglas Trumbull described it as um, really a guy with uh, three dogs in the wilderness. It's a very different, uh, yeah, you wanted it to make a, a human movie about um, with real people, emotions and, and flawed characters. So, yeah, I mean, the only similarity with 2001 really is uh, Douglas Trumbull worked on the special effects for 2001 and uh, Kubrick refused to give anybody else credits for special effects but he did have a big part to play in the special effects for that so he, he was known known for that but he'd never directed a movie before this was his first one no. I think he had quite an experienced uh, crew with him didn't he? he had, you know his cinematographer was quite experienced Charles Wheeler yeah even the writers weren't that experienced at the time I mean they went on to do great things with the deer hunter I think yeah Michael Michael Cimino I didn't realize he'd written this and this must have been one of his really early uh, writing gigs because yeah. the only one I was aware of that he'd written before he started directing was um, I think he's got a writing credit on Magnum Force, you know, the second Dirty Harry film which came out after yeah, this year. Yeah. And I think he did rewrites on the first one, but he didn't get credited. So, yeah, this this must have been one of his kind of, you know, jobbing. I don't know if it was a rewrite for him or if he'd come up with a story. But, yeah, he's, uh, there he is on the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the credits at the start of the film. The film, though, has a massive tonal shift on it from the first 20 minutes, I find to what the film becomes. Because you know, we, we, we're going to say spoiler, but we've already said in the summary at the beginning, you know, in the first 20 minutes, 
who introduced the lowl and is the ecologist on the ship and he's looking after 10 different plants and trees. He's mocked, isn't he, pretty much, by his other crewmates, the other three crewmates. It's kind of a, gen- it's a gentle mocking, but yeah, yeah you're right, that he's yeah. mocked, no question. They're like idiot jocks, and he makes that CG. He's already plays it. I mean, Bruce Dern plays it pretty nut side from the beginning, <laughs> doesn't he? He falls out with them over the slightest uh, mispronunciation of words or if they don't love the trees as much as him. And, uh, <laughs> and, it, and to really hammer home the fact is that these guys are idiots. Um, they have them like um, jetting around on these little go kart things around the yeah. around, around the forest, don't they? And like crushing plants and veg and stuff. And I don't understand what their purpose is. They don't seem to <laughs> don't. even know. They're not too confident of how those nuclear bombs work later on in the movie, are they? One of them nearly yeah. like presses the detonator at one point. And like you say, yeah, they're racing around on these buggies. They're running over his plants. He's he's probably had eight years of this. He's probably yeah. And he plays he plays cards with them, and our our hero, our protagonist, Lowell, is a bit of a card shark, isn't he? Because he he wins, but he wins in a really bad temper. Like the other guys are more like playing the game, and he and he wins, but a real real snarl to him. He's got that cheap visor, hasn't he? On it. Oh yeah. He's like the dealer, the dealer's visor. He's um just to really hammer home the fact is that the other guys' hairs have all been brushed, and uh, our friend Lowell. His hair is pretty wild all the way through, isn't it? It's like a, it, there's no hair speg on that. There's no brush going through it. It's... I think that might just be Bruce Stern's hair. <laughs> Every movie I've seen him in, he looks a bit like that. <laughs> he does look so unkempt. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah he's, he's really dishevelled, isn't he? And and uh, I love the um, I do love the fact is I was saying this to Lee before we started recording tonight that when we're introduced to his favourite forest, his favourite forest has got rabbits, um, eagles and uh, owls as well so let's talk about the food cycle on this uh, <laughs> i'd like to know the um you know the food chain on this is little forest how to keep on you know keeping the rabbits going because obviously yeah we would have to worry about those small complexities but uh yeah anyway going back to the sea change thing like in the first 20 minutes it, it, this is the scene set so we know he's building up intention when they get the big order to um, blow the forest, they're all delighted. And I was thinking about this. I mean, why would they be delighted? They, they're preserving the last forest on Earth. I know they want to go yeah. home, but they keep on talking about how terrible... Well, actually, they don't say Earth is terrible. They say Earth has become almost... Uh, yeah, they're kind of arguing for Earth, aren't they? They're saying yeah. everybody's got a job, uh, Lowell. Everybody's, uh, there's no disease or the very it's little warm, disease, I think. It's yeah, supposed it's to be nice warm and pleasant, but, but obviously things can't survive. And that's the other big criticism of the film, isn't it? If they can build these domes and stick them on the side of a ship and send the ship into space... Why can't the, the domes live on Earth? But then you came back with me when I said that to you, that maybe there's like falling debris in the sky which smashes the domes. And, yeah, uh, I mean, I think um, I can see the reason why I can see the reason why that, that the, the domes are in space. I cannot see the reason why they are orbiting Saturn. I think that was literally D- Douglas Trumbull wanted to pull off the Saturn special effects that they yeah. couldn't work out how to yeah. do in 2001. 2001 was Jupiter, doesn't it? Jupiter, so yeah. Well, Saturn yeah. was the original destination, and it, it basically by 72 it worked out how to do it. So, And yeah. also the original script was very different. It was supposed to be, uh, Lowell was supposed to be a much older character, which might uh, relate to why he has very little to return to Earth for, and the other three are quite infused about returning yeah, to the families and the girlfriends, and he doesn't seem to have anybody back home, does he, really? He doesn't have any pictures of anybody back home. He's asked later on towards the end of the film if he's got anyone home, and he's 
and you find that he hasn't. Uh, so yeah, maybe that's a that's a yeah. kind of a, a legacy from a, the earlier version of the story. He makes a very quick charge, doesn't it, between trees and people, and he chooses trees. But it, it, you know, maybe this is his madness to defend the film. You know, in the plot, is he chose his trees, but obviously the the inevitability of his plight by running away and not starving the trees of daylight, and you know the, what they'll leave, and eventually he will have to die, and the robots will eventually have no one to maintain it. So. He's, it's completely fruitless, his task, isn't it? Because all these forests will die unless they are returned to Earth to be preserved. But he, he, I suppose maybe he is mad. Maybe he's, he's completely lost. There were a lot of statements made by the film. What I got from it was the all the characters seem a little bit like high school children, don't they? They seem almost like teenage-like, uh, chewing, chewing gum, racing around on go-karts, aren't they? Yeah. And uh, very little... And everybody back home on Earth seems to have like no responsibilities. So, and even Bruce Dern's a bit of a nerd. And the um, I wonder if it's kind of making a statement in the future. Everybody's going to be man children, and everybody's the drones are going to do all the chores. It's the age-old argument that we're, we're losing connection with the Earth itself, aren't we? That basically we're yeah. all automated. Everything's automated now. Everything's prepackaged and done. Uh, we don't need to think, we don't need to work with the land, get soil under our fingers, you know. He, he, he makes that really impassioned speech, doesn't it? Look at that stuff. How can you guys sit there and really say anything to me about this? <laughs> Look at this crap. Look at that. Dried synthetic crap. And you've become so dependent on it that I bet you can't even live without it. Why do we want to, Lowell? Don't you realize how pitiful that is, what you just asked me? On Earth, everywhere you go, the temperature is 75 degrees. Everything is the same. All the people are exactly the same. Now, what kind of life is that? Well, if it's so rotten, why do you want to go back? Because it's not too late to change it. <laughs> what do you want, Lowell? I mean, there's hardly any more disease. There's no more poverty. Nobody's out of a job. That's right. Every time we have the argument, you say the same thing to me. You give me the same three answers all the time. The same thing. Well, everybody has a job. That's always the last one. But you know what else there is no more of, my friend? There is no more beauty. And there's no more imagination. And there are no frontiers left to conquer. And you know why? Only one reason why. One reason why the same attitude that you three guys are giving me right here in this room today. And that is nobody cares. Look on the wall behind you. Look at that little girl's face. I know you've seen it. But you know what she's never going to be able to see? She's never going to be able to see the simple wonder of a leaf in her hand. Because there's not going to be any trees. What do you think about that? Well, the importance of trees and and nature and you know hurt and pain and and the fact is different weather and raindrops falling on your face and stuff um this that's the big message is it and that message is repeated you know quite often but like you said yeah i agree with you they are like a bunch of jocks aren't they they're playing pool yeah, it's like jocks versus yeah. nerds isn't it almost yeah. on the first bit and i think also it's is it making a statement that ultimately if we continue on the course we're on is it going to lead to eco-terrorism because he's he's kind of like the first eco-terrorist isn't he he's uh it's he, not obviously we value human life over oh, everything yeah. else and he does commit the ultimate sin doesn't he in taking a, a human life he is like the is like is like the greenpeace whaling boats isn't he but on a, on a floating uh, ship. The first killing, when he commits the first killing of, uh, you know, his, his colleague, I think it was 
it seems to be it's somewhat accidental because they're having mm. a scuffle, yes. Mm. But I think you know, in 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 the heat of the scuffle, he manages to kind of yeah. uh, kill him. I think it's more of an accidental kind of note. And I think it's possibly that act that then triggers him to think, okay, well, I have to act now. I can't. I've kind yeah, of I've kind of yeah. gone and done this now. I need I need to go and act. The French would call it a crime of passion, wouldn't they? Really, yeah, and then certainly. Yeah. The rest of the killings is more covering up for his original sin, isn't it? He's... He um he said that original fight. That's when he gets wounded, does it? And it's like really stark. I don't know if about the version of the film you watch, but the, the blood is really red, isn't it? Yes, yeah, very very early seventies, early seventies, dirty Harry kind of bright red, uh, bright red blood. But there's quite a lot of it. It's, uh, when he opens up the, when he gets the drone to kind of perform a surgery on him. It... That was actually a fake leg because Bruce Dern would not trust. Uh, Douglas Trumbull was operating that cutting tool, <laughs> but he would not trust that cutting tool anywhere near his leg. That's hilarious. Do you blame him? Because if you, if, let's get onto these robots. These robots are like a little wobbly square thing uh, with legs and they don't have arms, they have legs and they have like a little prod thing which comes out, a little pincer. And and because of the you know the technology and also the fact is they were operated by uh, quadriplegic actors, weren't they? Inside yes, the, yes, yes. Inside Bi- the bilateral um, amputees. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> so those those it's wobbly as anything when it's operating on his leg. There's nowhere I'd let any that anywhere near me. <laughs> and there's a scene in the film later where, uh, or is it earlier where one of these wobbly robots stacks pool balls because in the future you play pool where the balls are stacked vertically. And it takes forever. It's like a, it's really slow, and it's like. A, I don't know what. Was, yeah, was that was that the one with the huge robot? They had like a huge like car yeah. robot arm, didn't they? And uh, apparently there was going to be a big scene where all the drones would play pool together, but they basically ran out of time to to do that scene, so they settled for the card game instead. Yeah, as as a cheaper option. Yeah, he t- he trains the um, robots, doesn't he, how to play cards, how to play poker? Because yeah, he needs- becomes a computer programmer as well. Yeah, and he's he's quite a talented guy, really. Yeah, but not a very good botanist. <laughs> he's a terrible botanist, but he's a good he's a good card hand. He's a card shark, <laughs> and he's a he's a good killer actually because he kills quite swiftly. He kills the Pretty first swiftly. one. Yeah. Rob, uh, sorry, Lee, you mentioned the um, the. Bruce Dern character. Sorry, Bruce Dern not trusting the special effects uh, with his actual leg so that he wouldn't kind of drill through his bone. One story I read was that um, Douglas Trumbull's um, special effects team was made up of um, like his students. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not guess. I don't know if these guys got were, were getting paid or were you know had relevant experience themselves because it, it was Trumbull's first yeah. directorial job. And so I, I wonder if that kind of played into it as well. He's like, oh, hang on a minute. You know, it's like having student uh, student doctors uh, operate on you. They did have his dad, Don Trumbull, who'd worked on The Wizard of Oz and was an old hand. He'd worked on special effects uh, for many years. So I think he created the, uh, you know, the go-karts. He did the transmission for those. And I think he was helping out on the, And he kind of brought his dad back into the movie industry because he'd been outside of the, the, the industry for a while. So uh, yes. it wasn't all novices. But yeah, you're right. It was, uh, they did have college kids working on it as well. Yeah. And one, I love the go-karts. Yeah. yeah. go-karts are cool. In fact, it, it, it made me think because um, one of his students, the second in the, in the credits at the end, the second build special effects guy after Trumbull is a chap called John John Dykstra and John Dykstra actually went on from this to do special effects for things like Star Wars and also Battlestar Galactica 
which came at the end mm. of the series. And that makes lots of use of like, you know, it's kind of big indoor sets that kind of look for, for, for a TV show. You know, I said it had quite a, quite a kind of look of a, of a maybe a, mm. a movie made for TV. Also, Battlestar Galactica used footage from Silent Running in quite a few episodes um, because one of the ships in the Battlestar Galactica fleet is the agricultural uh, ship of theirs. And of course, whenever they had an episode that involved it, they would use the footage of the, the, the domes from Silent Running. Um, I don't know if they use the same sets. It looks similar inside as well. I don't know if it's exactly the same set as a few years later. But yeah, John Dykstra went on and, well, basically... Galactica took this entire idea of having a big forest in space, and they they kind of incorporated it mm. into their uh, into their plots and used the footage as well. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that. There was a, a lot of that with the movie. A lot of the people who worked on the movie went on to do great things. Uh, yeah, Close Encounters, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think Douglas Trumbull worked on that. I think he was even asked by George Lucas to do the special effects for Star Wars, but refused it. I mean, he must regret that decision. Well, is that right? I th- I thought he'd done Star Wars. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll check it out. But yeah, maybe I, I know he did. Yeah, in the interview on the on the Blu-ray, there's an interview with him. Yeah, and he uh, whether it was true or not, but he, George Lucas always also asked him permission to use R2-D2, which was obviously very similar to the drones. I think if he'd been involved, uh, R2-D2 would have been a toaster. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, what would C-3PO have got? He would have filed, I don't know. If, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 it, it's still, you know, like you said earlier, Carl, it does, you know, you can blatantly see the models, but they're very well-made models, aren't you? You can forgive that. It's like I was saying to Lee, I said to Lee before we started tonight that um, there's even a big budget film that, which always sticks in my head, a, a bad model, is the Superman film. When you know when he reverses time, is that Superman 2 or 1? Uh, 2, is it? It's 1. I think it's the first one. Yeah. yeah. When he reverses time, there's a model of a rocks um, stopping a flood. Yes. And it's like all these loose rocks in a canyon. And it every time, even as a kid, I used to watch it, that, that used to so take me out of the film. It was that one sequence of thought, please don't have that sequence. And it looks awful. It looks like, it, it honestly looks like somebody's just turned a tap on and then they've just found a few paper mashy rocks in a, in a, yeah. And I didn't feel that in this film. You know, I do, I'm not a fan, but I didn't, it didn't bother me, the models. I thought the models were decent and I was part, I was in, involved. Yeah. I thought the, um, there's a scene later on where he's actually he's out on the outside of the ship and this garnered mm. some criticism, didn't it? Because, um, they're saying yeah. that the materials used for this really kind of thin spacesuit that he's that he's um, out in space. It was just a diving suit, wasn't it? Yeah. It would have just been pulled um, apart. A, a bicycle helmet, yeah. It, <laughs> obviously, you'd be blown apart in seconds in reality, but uh, they obviously they were working with a bit of budget and then time scales and everything. Uh, but uh, I thought some of the effects, I, I, I've seen some criticism of the Saturn effects, really. Some people sort of saying, well, why is there a wind while he's going through the rings mm. of Saturn? But I quite enjoyed the psychedelic uh, section of the film and unfortunately Louis obviously bites the dust and gets sucked off by Saturn as I say earlier but uh, I thought I was off by the ring you just, yeah. you just wanted to say that again didn't you uh, yeah yeah just yeah why not? yeah you know enough, I, I do I do like films with with you know ambitious looking special effects and this is definitely a film like that although I said it, it you know it could have been like you know a a good early 1970s, you know, movie of the week. It, similarly, 
I'd pr- I would like to see this at the cinema because of its special effects and see what they look like on you know on yeah. a big screen. Very much made to be shown on a huge screen because it was um, meant to be shown really on the Cimarana, was it? Cimarana? Oh, is that true? I didn't know about that. It was like an early IMAX type uh, sort of dome screen. Yes, like a curved screen. It didn't quite take off. Obviously, later on, we got the IMAX screens, but it was very very much uh, shot with the intention of being shown on them. But unfortunately, it went the way of the multiplex, didn't it? The small screens and, and this film didn't benefit from that, I don't think. No, this, I mean this film. This film, I suppose, like quite a few seventies films, it's got long periods of silence, hasn't it? Because if you think about it, it's like after 20, 20 minutes, you've got seventy minutes left of the film, and he's on his own at that point, apart from you know the uh, the limbless guys in the in the in the robots. But uh, he is on his uh, he's on his own uh, for the next seventy minutes, and it's a lot of soliloquy, isn't it? A lot yeah. of him, his own monologue and his own. Um, and yeah, his only companions are the drones. I think I remember watching it as a kid and sort of just waiting for these. All I remember is the drones. Really, I was just waiting for the drones to come back on because yeah, they kind of have a little character all of their own, their own, don't they? They mm-hmm. tap in the foot as they're waiting. For- yeah, I like, I like that scene. I noticed that and I thought that's that's funny. That's good because it's just the kind of touch I don't think they'd bother with in um, in in many films. You know, there's the the, the the robot would be the thing, but to have one tapping hmm. his foot impatiently, I thought it was really funny. Uh, and uh, the bit where uh, Huey's being operated on and the other one's looking on, and I think he tells the robot to go and get him something, but he's not shifting, he's just staying watching his pal, which I think at the end of the movie, when he does send Dewey off on his own, I think it's quite cruel that he doesn't uh, send Huey as well. It doesn't make sense because he's he's going to blow it. He's going to he's going to commit suicide anyway. So why not give the other robot a chance and put them? It's a bit cruel. Yeah, yeah it doesn't make sense. Yeah, but I suppose you know if he is, you know, the argument could be if if he's already lost his mind, he's not thinking straight, and yeah, at this point, you know, he's killed he's killed three humans for the first time, and. It's just, uh, and he's been living with robots for for weeks. So. That could mess with your head, yeah. <laughs> Anybody's head, because there's that bit where the the control is it the Berkshire, the other ship uh, manages to track him down, and he hears uh, control coming through, and he's he kind of thinks he's hearing the voice, doesn't he? He kind of he's staring at the radio for ages, and he's not realizing what's happening. So he's obviously in like a really confused state. He's almost in like a kind of a trance. He's not. He's not able to kind of respond at first. You know, he responds really quietly, doesn't he? Maybe he was growing some wacky backy on the uh, on the <laughs> ship. Maybe possibly. <laughs> I mean, that's the character anyway, because Lyle has already lost the inability to communicate, hasn't he? Because he's so argumentative, he just can't have. He doesn't have that human. Maybe that's the part of one of the storylines. I don't know. One of the ideas he wants to get across is he's more in tune with the robots. You know, his day to day tasks of tending the garden. And you know, returning to sleep and eating, you know, rather than the um, the humans on ship who still, you know, they still have bits of banter, don't they? They still have a laugh and they still play pool, mm. and they're still very much in touch with Earth and humanity. And mm. He's already given up on Earth. He's like, no, he just is. A, he's a gardener, and that's what he does. He just tends his garden, returns home, and that's. Uh, he's also there's also the big thing in it. He's the only person on the ship who eats organic food, isn't it? The yeah. rest of the guys they're eating this like processed stuff, which um, is supposed. Well, he says that it's tasteless, um, and it's, you know it has no 
you know, if, what, what's the, what's is, is something he's grown, isn't it? What's he? I think it's a melon. Yeah, they they kind of say, "Oh, you're there with your stinky melon," and I think one of them yeah. sort of bullies him and sort of said, "Oh, I'll I'll just take a slice of melon," and then he absolutely flips, doesn't he? He's quite protective yeah. over yeah. his his produce. He's like he is like a, a vegan warrior in a way, isn't it? You can imagine like a, <laughs> being tucked to a beef being tucked to a beef eater and just going crazy. I wonder how far sighted this film was back in 1971. I wonder if there were people. They, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, from Hollywood, California, I guess there might have been this kind of movement. But generally speaking, were there were there people around who were kind of so well uh, well informed about you know how you know industrialization of the world and um, I think so pollution yeah. of the planet and how it's you know so uh, quite so damaging. I mean, this film's what fifty, nearly sixty years old. No, sorry, <laughs> check my maths, fifty odd years old. Vietnam was obviously underway still in 72, mm. so there was all that Agent Orange, uh, Dow Chemical, and, uh, obviously Agent Orange was controversial. It was uh, completely ruining the forest. <laughs> Donald <there>. Trump, <laughs> Agent Orange. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think even Douglas Trumbull uh, got Dow Chemical to to donate a lot of the uh, chemicals for the special effects that they needed to create them as a, as a goodwill exercise, as a PR exercise, because they were trying to rebuild their reputation at the time. See. Uh, but I think, yeah, very much the environmental me- movement had start- it started in the early 60s, hadn't it, with the flower power? And, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I read that there was quite a bit of product placement in it, but I didn't really notice. It's not, you know, like last week when we did um, Over the Top, that's full of it. But The containers, isn't it, on the uh, the racetrack? It was it was a disused aircraft carrier, I think, where they filmed it, wasn't it? So they must have been one of the upper decks or something, the loading bay maybe, where they built oh, the racetrack. Yeah, yeah. So it was de- decommissioned. Uh, it was actually called the Valley Forge, which is what this spacecraft was named after. And uh, they had full reign of use of the aircraft carrier as long as they they didn't have to return it to how it was, but as long as they didn't take any metal from the ship, they were okay to do whatever they wanted with it. It's a dying finger, I suppose, in the modern cinema, but the... You know, you could say there was no interference you could see with the script, was there? Because you can see that, like, there really are these long, protracted sequences, mm. uh, which there's no way in a modern, you know, if it, a big budget, I know it wasn't mega budget, but it was still sizable. A big budget film, did, there's no way they'd allow that to happen. There's no way. The, the iPhone generation would not hold their attention, would it? For, for sure, <laughs> yeah. They were staring at Bruce Stern's face and his sort of tortured expression <laughs> would not hold... Oh, the Apple generation. He's sweaty. He's quite sweaty as well. I mean, going back to sweat, like he's got a sweaty face. And, uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's quite um. Even he was, how how old was he then? Because he, he's still quite um saggy face, is he? Even for a young guy, he's about eighty now, isn't he? Is he about eighty years old at the moment? Yeah. So how old would he been then? If fifty years old, so he was about late twenties when he did that. Maybe I don't know. The, the earliest yeah. film I've seen him in, I think he was in Hang 'Em High with Clint Eastwood. He's a villain in that. Mm. And uh, that's 1968. So that was that was probably you know a few years before. I'm not sure how old he is. I mean, yeah. the most recent thing I've seen Bruce Dern is, and he's in loads of films. Yeah, he's in uh, Once Upon a Time in um, in Hollywood. Tarantino's other film uh, was it Hateful Eight. He's in that one as well. Let's have a look. He's 84 apparently at the moment. Okay. Is he the um, the old perv who's got a young woman? He's like a blind man. That's right. That one? Yeah. 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 They've all yeah, taken over his house, haven't they? Yeah, the hippies are using him, aren't they? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's right. That's the last. I think that's the last thing I've seen him in. He's, he's probably been making films um, beside that one. He's very. He's been yeah. very prolific throughout his career. 
crops up in all sorts. I was reading the criticisms and there's a lot of people you know, suggesting that he really overacts, but I think he's supposed to. I think he's been instructed to do that and I think he's playing it that way. And um, the, the thing is with Dern as well, if you look at any of his other film roles, he, he never plays it low-key. You know, he's, he's not a low-key actor. He's always kind of on the edge and twitchy. You know, he's kind of like kind of like Jack Nicholson, I suppose, in some way. You're, you're expecting a certain kind of performance when you employ mm. uh, Bruce Dern. And funnily enough, this I think this is probably one of the only films where he's got a lead role. Um, you know, he's kind of the yeah. uh, the attention's on him for most most of the film, really. That's it. It's him and three robots, isn't it? So he's got to carry the film to a certain. Yeah, he's got to uh, he's got to have some presence to uh, you know to carry that yeah. off. And there was something I read the way he said he was the he was kind of like the seventeenth or so person asked yeah. to to be in the film after everyone else had kind of said no to it. So uh, I don't know if this film was a yeah. lucky break for him or not, but you know it's certainly one of the roles he'll be remembered for. Apparently, Larry Hagman was quite close. I think Douglas Trumbull went <laughs> to his house and they had a they had a hot tub night where he because the 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 robe apparently was in spite you know that um, the iconic robe that Bruce oh, Dern yeah, wears yeah. Uh, in, in it was inspired by the That's kind huge. of hot tubs that you would get in the sixties where you'd go out mm. under the stars and you'd. Probably smoke a joint, taking the uh, taking the view. So apparently, uh, he was quite close to getting the role. I think that was the hard thing for me because I, I didn't, you know, obviously I've appreciated him in other things, but in this, I wasn't enjoying him as the lead. I actually felt more attached to some of the other guys. He, he bumped off in the first twenty minutes. He's not an easy character to like, is he? Yeah, he's uh, not an easy character what to warm to. I suppose uh, a bit of an anti-hero, is he? Yeah. 70 minutes of his sweaty, wobbly face. It's very different watching it as an adult, kind of watch it with a more critical eye and you, you see the, the plot holes, of, as you've mentioned, but still you have that memory of the emotion that it caused you as a kid, kind of like seeing E.T. die. There's three murders, there's a, a suicide and two of the drones get destroyed and the other one's left on his own for eternity, so it's quite a dark film for a kid to see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I did see mentioning ET. I saw that recently. I, I didn't twitch once at the um, ET falling pale and sick, um, <laughs> and even when Drew Barrymore goes like ET there, and I, I, I <laughs> you're so hard, at... you're so hard, Rob. <laughs> I read that uh, George Lucas told Drew Barrymore that was a real alien, and she kind of that's why she took it so hard. Or she was well, allegedly, allegedly, we have to say alleged, but allegedly she was. Starting her her journey, a <laughs> journey in her substances from a very early age. Yeah. DT's for home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ET's got some great crack. No, that was none of that. He's a drug dealing alien. That was the original script. <laughs> I want to see that film, don't you? And basically, when he comes on his ship, he's like, got a, he's got to he's got to sell his supply quick and then get back on his ship. He's where's Barrymore, <laughs> and then he can he can get rid of it all then in one go. Sell um, crack. <laughs> so, um, Lee, but, you you said this is a film that holds you know a great deal of kind of nostalgia for you, um, having seen it on TV quite a few times. Yeah. I must say, I must say, this is the first time I've seen it. Although I've been, a, I've been aware of this film, kind of, you know, as a as a film that exists. But um, I remember missing it once many years ago because it formed part of um, on BBC Two in the early nineties. There was a program called um, a Movie Drone, which was presented by mm. Alex Cox, the director of uh, Repo yeah. Man, Walker, 
and uh, you know a few other films here and there. He's you know he's a talented uh, talented guy, and uh, every every week he'd come he'd come on and say present like Django or some spaghetti western, and really that program was like my introduction to you know what you call kind of really kind of weird oddball cinema, which has kind of you know stayed with me ever since really. And this was one film that he put on in that season where um, I I think for whatever reason, one week I missed it. I remember seeing it later on because I had his uh, movie drawn guide and he'd done a little write-up for the side of running. And I thought, oh, I must, you know, I must I must watch that at some point. I must check it out. And for some reason, it's always, always eluded me. So my kind of memory of it, having not seen it, is just that, and I think this is kind of the, the perfect film for, Alex Cox's movie drone. It's um, oh, yeah. it's ninety minutes. Yeah. You know, it's got some really interesting ideas, interesting crew, special effects are kind of notable, noteworthy, and um, it's for me, it's 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 sits perfectly. It's a you know, it's a good choice for in in that kind of company as you know, part of Alex Cox's movie drone from many years ago. Yeah, I, I, during that season as well, I remember because I just um, I saw the film uh, Demon Seed at that time. Which yes. has also got, you know, it's got connections to 2001 because it's got a creepy, it's an automated house. It's also a similar message about automation. An automated house which, like, uh, decides to impregnate the lady it's trapped in the house to create, like, this future, um, this future evolved species of half machine, half human. It's, and that Voiced by Robert Vaughan. It's so creepy. Isn't Voiced it? by Robert Vaughan as such, Proteus. Yeah, Proteus. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, and that was. Yeah, and it's um, so that's that's probably got connections to this as well. But yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, there was talk apparently of um, doing a remake or a sequel, but apparently the idea was behind the, the they try to track down the original dome. But I'm not too sure how you would do a sequel. Really, maybe remake would be interesting to remake it with a bigger budget and maybe have that in alien encounter that we were. On the Perhaps, film. yeah. According to the original script, um, you know, with, with with the money and the effects that have got available now, uh, perhaps that would be. Imagine that if they've done if they've done an alien encounter and beaten the alien to the punch, uh, and done it just as well. You know how different this film would be now. Mm. It did influence Alien apparently, the because uh, it was the first time we'd seen a really grimy looking ship, isn't it? It's got rivets everywhere. Obviously, it's an aircraft carrier, so it, previous to that, every every Starship looked kind of like Star Trek. It looked very pristine and very sterile, and the even the crew members are, are a bit like the aliens crew, where they're not very they're not NASA types, are they? They're just average Joes. So it yeah. kind of did influence yeah. Alien in a way. And even that bit where the um, the monitor goes uh, to static when uh, Louis gets killed, you know, you, you can see in the, the later Aliens films when the soldiers get killed, it kind of goes to static, doesn't it, when they lose a, lose a soldier, so... Oh, yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definite influences, certainly. And um, I think the, the thing you mentioned as well, the um, the thing about the space vehicles and areas looking kind of worn and oily and grimy, that was definitely an idea that was carried through to um, to Star Wars, uh, you know, where you can mm. see the, 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 the battleships are all kind of, grimy yeah. and um also in Battlestar Galactica they they kind of carried the idea through as well uh, which came not long after yeah because yeah, that's the laughable about 50s b-movies and 60s that they're all wearing these very clean looking clothes with a-line clothing aren't they and giant shoulder pads and stuff that's right they just they just <laughs> got some uh calgon in the wash uh with the, with, for the spacesuits and uh 
got rid of all those stains. Instead of realising what a spaceship would be, which is like an industrial, you know, factory in the sky. Yeah. That's what it would be. It would be mm. a work workplace, yeah. So what's it going to be, boys? Does this one rot in the morgue? Or make it on the helicopter to freedom? So, are we going to... Uh, Talk about the morgue. The morgue, yeah, yeah. Because I think we should go around the robin because we'll save. Should we save you for lastly? I'll go first. Yeah, you, yeah. Give Lee decided vote. Yeah, yeah, Because that's only fair. Because yeah, if you if if you, uh, if you are, have listened to us a few times, we've decided to be quite fair with the uh, films. We've decided to go round robin like uh, choosing films. So this is Lee's film this week, and uh, so actually, because I'll, I'll go on about my decision about the morgue. So. Um, I do want to keep it in the mark. I only for the sense that, only, but I felt really guilty about keeping the mark because when when you know somebody cherishes the film and somebody you, you, who's a good friend, you want to you want to preserve it. But I just could. I, I'd literally after the first twenty so minutes, I was really struggling with it, and I don't know whether it's maybe like you said, maybe I'm an iPhone generation now. Maybe my I need quick stimulus and input more often, and most of the things I watch like Mandalorian and stuff like this so much happening on the screen in every five seconds. But I, there was long, long, long sequences in this. And I never wanted the character, um, you know, Lau, and uh, the stupidity of the uh, his decisions and the the, the, the pseudoscience in it. And the, maybe the heavy-handed message as well about... Uh, John Baez. Yeah, and Joan Baez as well. <laughs> and yeah. she comes and up at the end with a second song, doesn't she? And I could have, I could have killed her at that point. So was, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know that that feeling of emptiness when a film ends, and you, and you think, so the film ended, and I was actually breathless with like how frustrated I was, <laughs> just like almost like I'd been on a date with like somebody I really fancied. But then this uh, is a payback for Halloween three, Rob, <laughs> for making me sit through. That. I got on a date with someone really fancy, but then we never, you know, she teased second base, but it never happened, and. Uh, I don't think he even hit. I know I did hit first base when I, when when uh, Lau was uh, killing his crewmates and uh, but then um, yeah I just you know but I'm glad that you, but I suppose it's one of those things it's it's in, as a part of a canon it's a necessary film to take place and I like the fact is that this guy just these these guys just went out there and did this film and did it almost like guerrilla style in a sense and you know handled all these things, first-time writers and special effects and everything. And um, and it stands up in that sense. But I, I definitely, for me, it's maybe because of, like, the impact of the film. It's just leaving the uh, the zombie apocalypse on the helicopter. But then the helicopter definitely gets shot down by Lau with the nuclear warhead. <laughs> and it just crumbles, and that's it, and you have to burn. So that's... <laughs> so sorry, sorry for me, it's a mark. Okay, Carlos, do you want to go next? I think, yeah, thank you. It's um, well for me. This, as I said earlier, this this film is is, is perfect movie drum material. Um, I don't think it's a classic. It's got some really interesting ideas, and it is. I, I find it quite interesting to see someone like Bruce Dern, who's basically a character actor for the most part, um, you know, take the lead role in the, in this uh, in this particular film. He does chew up the scenery a little bit, but I, I, I quite enjoy Bruce Dern in most of the things that he's in. And he's normally a villain, of course, where he's twitching is uh, mostly, uh, uh, you know, maybe a bit more appreciated. But um, I like the effects. Uh, I did like the miniatures, even though you could kind of tell there were there were miniatures in places. I enjoyed the kind of artistry behind it. Um, 
and when the film, I, I thought it clocked in a nice, nice ninety odd minutes. You know, it it, it wasn't like two thousand and one where you know it takes whatever it is two and a half hours to kind of get its events, have its events unfold. Uh, good night, good tightly packed ninety minutes. It, historically, it's an important science fiction film. And so, yeah, I, I, it, it was a first watch for me, and um, I, I liked it. I don't think it's the. Cl- I know some people really. I know. Uh, I don't know what you're going to say, Lee, but I, I know that some people hold it in really high regard. You know, filmmakers and critics uh, alike. I wouldn't say. I would, I would. I'm not sure if I go that far with Silent Running, but I'd. I'd certainly give it. Um, you know, I. Uh, it's an important film, and I think. Uh, it's perfect, yeah, perfect movie drama material. So um, I think what I'm going to do with uh, Silent Running is I'm going to send it, send it away on the final dome with um, uh, is it Huey? Who's the one that's left? Is it Huey, the one that? Uh, G- Dewey is the one in the dome. Yeah, Dewey. I'm going to send it away with Dewey for all of eternity, just to kind of float away in space. It's going to perish eventually. Eventually, it will perish. But <laughs> I, I, it's so. It's. I think it's. It's more than interesting enough to warrant not be. I can't put it in the morgue. I can't. It's too. It's too good for that. It's too good for that. Uh, thanks, for that Carl. Well, I would say, obviously, I would argue it. It probably is a classic because of its influence, as you say, historical influence on the fu- future films of Aliens and even. Red Dwarf. I think the director of Red Dwarf said it was an influence for that. Sure. It was. I think some people have said it's like a special effects movie, but I think it's more uh, a humanity movie. It's it's a movie of emotions, really. And it's this for me. It has to uh, escape from the morgue because Little <laughs> Lee back in 1985 was probably six feet away from his uh, his old square CRT TV waiting probably for just the drones to come back on the TV, Uh, you know, probably only uh, engrossed by the bits where the drones are on there. And you've got to remember this was just after Star Wars. And I was obviously really first, if for any more kind of sci-fi films that featured drones. So it did hit me pretty hard at the time. And even rewatching it as a 43 year old adult, I still had a little sort of tear in my eye in the corner of my eye, sort of watching it at the end as the, uh, rather morose melancholic music conjunctivitis <laughs> yeah it was just it was just allergies yeah it was nothing really. I can I can understand why people like it I can I mean personally I, I wouldn't rank it as a classic but I can understand why people would watch it and, you know really take to it and really kind yeah. of feel empathy with it Commode's obviously Mark Commode uh, a big film critic in the UK has quite a big uh, platform out there, his own TV shows and things, and he, he rates it as his uh, second favourite film of all time. Now, I wouldn't say that go quite that far. You think he ranks Exorcist first and then yeah, Silent Running Exorcist. second. Yeah, it's his um, favourite. And I think he re-watches Silent Running nearly every seven or eight months, I think he says. Yeah. Well, not quite that far, but it is a film that I revisit every ten years and I kind of get something very different from it every time obviously as an adult i do see some of the plot holes and i get some of the criticism but i think for me it will be a film that i revisit when i'm in the 50s again and just keep watching it uh, to the very end really so for me it escapes maybe the droids escape the morgue and maybe maybe bruce maybe bruce stays in the morgue so you said you're gonna 
when you said you're going to watch it to the very end, so on your deathbed, like all your loved ones around your bed, and you say, just get out of the room. Yeah. Put silence on him now. Yeah. Give me a nuclear bomb, and I'm going to end it quick. Yeah. Lee and Rob, I, I saw this on, um, on Amazon Prime last night. Um, again, it was the first first watch for me. But Lee, Lee, you've got a very interesting uh, release of this film. The distributor is Eureka, and it's a V8. A lot of the newer Blu-rays now are doing this VHS styling on the the box. Uh, it's got a couple of postcards in there, nice poster, lots of extras on the Blu-ray. They're making of an interview with uh, the director, and um, yeah, well worth picking up. I think it was only thirteen quid, which was a bit of a bargain, really. So uh, yeah. Check it's it a nice looking edition, isn't it? And you know, if if, if you're a someone who's coming mm. into the uh, the way you know all VHS boxes used to look, I think it's uh, it's definitely a nice little thing to have on your uh, on your shelf. And of course, you you you're buying physical media as well, so you you kind of got it for all time there in a nice uh, nice restored edition. And um, I, I believe, apart from that UK edition, I think I think Silent Running's being released in the USA and Canada. So if you're listening in the USA and Canada. I think Arrow Video, which is a UK company, but they yeah. they, they put some titles out in the states as well, stateside. Um, they've got a new, brand new, spanking edition of this. I think it's a 4K scan, um, which is coming out in November. I don't. Lee, do you know the date for this? No, I just know it's November. It's yeah, out in it's, November. I didn't, from, I didn't know it's a 4K scan. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so it's uh, it should look even better than, than it's than it's looked before so yeah keep keep an eye out for that one uh, I, I think it's probably going to be one of those that will that will sell out fairly quickly so um, if you want a copy another thing to mention is apparently a band i don't know the name of the band off the top of my head but they've they've redone the soundtrack for the movie and i think there was talk of the band i don't know if this has happened or not but there was talk of the band doing a live performance while screening the film uh, so mm. they've rewritten the complete soundtrack. Whether it's any good or not, I don't know, but uh, it'll be worth checking out. I'll have a look for that later. Yeah. Mm. Now, um, Lee, we it's November. Um, I'm just reminded. How how are things going with our competition? Well, um, I think we said we were going to run it until the 27th of November, um, yeah. and the Blu-ray, the sorry, the 4K uh, UHD is released, and then we will pick a winner. So you've still got a chance to win it. Yeah, get um, go to the, our Twitter account, and it's a pinned tweet. You can enter the competition. Yeah, uh, still got a chance. You can also do it on the Instagram. Um, so basically, uh, same competition. It's to win the Bill and uh, the yeah. Bill and Ted. Uh, free uh, so you just you just go onto the instagram account it's going it's manchester movie morgue and just uh, retweet post sign up let me know you enter in the contest and uh, you put you in the draw it's as simple as that thanks guys yeah because it, it feels like we've we've had this competition running for well since is that episode three um so it feels <laughs> yeah, like yeah. forever but i guess it's coming to an end now so guys there's still time and we'll um We'll send out a copy of the um, 4K UHD for uh, you know as uh, after the 27th. So get your get your name in the hat, give us a listen, and um, yeah, you might you might be in with a chance. And also listen to episode three uh, if you haven't done so already. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> okay, well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, goodbye from me. Thanks so much, and goodbye. Thank you, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs>